Okay, here we are on January 12th, 2017, the first meeting of 2017 for the Science Fiction Club, and we're talking about Mission Tomorrow. Um, and it's a collection of short stories about space exploration, and I just blanked on the editor. So anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, it'll be in the Newswire or in the previous one. Whatever. So... Okay, we'll go around and see what people thought of this collection of 18 stories. Well, I may as well start. I have a hard time remembering these stories, too, and I even read a couple of them this afternoon just to see if I can remember what they were about. And uh, the one that I really... There are a couple I really liked. I guess we can talk about the ones that we liked, because then that would kind of make sense, and the ones that we had questions about, too, because there's a lot to think about here. First of all, I thought the introduction was absolutely wonderful, and I, I love his enthusiasm. I think his last name is Schmidt, the editor. I forgot what his first name was. Um, the two stories that I absolutely loved were the one about the Australian Aborigine astronaut who went on a galactic walkabout, sort of like what they did in Australia, and uh, I would have loved it if they would have turned that into a novel because it seemed to be sort of open-ended. You know, you kind of figured out that she was going to have to go with the alien and the AI and stuff. And the other one that I loved was the one about Jupiter. seems like we always run into these big flying balloons on Jupiter. But that was intriguing. I thought that whole thing had a twist to it also. And... Uh, I like Silverberg's story about Mercury because, actually, I'd read that before in one of Silverberg's collections. But I like it that the, the creature that they came across wasn't just trying to kill him off. It was actually trying to help him, and this astronaut wanted to die. So the alien thought, well, let's help this guy die. So he dies. You know, it's an interesting twist that you never would have really thought. And and that was one of Silverberg's very first stories, too. So that showed that when he was about 18 years old, he sure had a lot of talent. But anyway, what did the rest of you guys think? Well, as I said, um, I, them, I read them a while, uh, not a while back, but maybe a couple of weeks ago. And I, I, I was, yesterday was going over a few of them just to try to refresh my memory. And as I said, when I, when I was reading them, most of them I enjoyed. But to try to keep track of them, but there are a few that stood out in my mind. I, I, that walkabout, I also liked. I liked that. Obviously, it was written by an Australian because they put in mythology of the, you know, terms from the Aboriginal language of the dream time and all that, which I think was interesting. And, and then, of course, how she related to the or alien. Well, actually, it turns out that the alien was trying to well, we thought it was out, out to get them, and I guess it was in a sense because afterwards they took control of the ship, and that's what, how it ended when she was relating all all her knowledge to that robot, and the robot was a very sympathetic type of uh, entity, also. So I enjoyed that one. I had to review it last last night to remember it. Uh, another one I liked was Arca called Arcadia. Um, oh, I'm, now I'm forgetting what it's about. <laughs> oh, was that was that Oh, that was about the Russians, I think. Yeah, was that the one about that Russian uh, astronaut? Now they ended up putting him, you know, they, they, they didn't have enough space to send a live body, so they, they, they took his personality and put him into a machine. I thought that was a good story, too. It was a, one that had to do with those Brazilian astronauts. Was that the one on, was that on Jupiter or which planet was? But that, I enjoyed that, too. And there were probably a lot of others, but I didn't take the trouble of taking notes on them, which perhaps I should have done. But it was an enjoyable read. Well, I think I enjoyed all of them except the rabbit hole. That one just didn't ever make sense to me. Uh, so I, you know, the business of traveling through a wormhole and all of the weird stuff that was going on, that one just didn't make much sense to me. So that's the only one I didn't like. The others ranged to okay from okay. Well, I think they were all okay. I don't know that I would consider any of them, um, you know, excellent stories. I, I found the Silverberg one really interesting from the point that it didn't have any modern technology in it. You know, like um, 
it didn't seem to have computers or anything else. It was more like the old Lensman series uh, of books as far as technology went. Well, I thought overall, too, everything was just okay. None of these really jumped out at me as being stories that I really liked a lot. Um, it's interesting, Mary, that you said that's one of Silverberg's earliest short stories. That That's good to know. I kind of liked that. I thought that was interesting. And the Russian one, too, like somebody else said, that was kind of interesting. The one where the guy, um, he was a bad guy, and he ends up in, in hell, I think, and he's put in charge of hell. That was kind of disappointing because you kind of want to see him be in hell, not be in charge of it. Um, you want to see him get his. A couple of them, which seems to be a trend in short stories, I think they like to have these abrupt endings, and um, you're just supposed to kind of be left... I don't know. I, it seems a little pretentious. I don't always need everything wrapped up nicely, but I kind of don't like it when they it's just like, what, it's done? And you're kind of wanting to know what happened next. Uh, well, I thought it was okay. I agree with I agree with Marshall, though. I mean, the technology was kind of... This is the kind of this is the kind of problem I used to have with analog. I mean, most of these stories would have fit right in in analog, especially the ones where... Like that one where she... Her her um, partner passes out and she can't get in and she's got a, and there's a solar flare coming and they've got to figure out the orbital mechanics so she bangs into the ribbon and I don't remember at all but I just lost my interest in that I don't, those kinds of stories I just have no interest in at all. Lissy kind of liked it a little bit because the character was a little more developed than in some of those kinds of stories so she thought that was kind of good. Um, no, she wasn't interested in the technical stuff either. But um, I, um, I kind of liked the reality TV one. That was kind of fun. I thought that she really, or he—I can't remember who wrote it—hit the nail with the, you know, the reality space. It was a biting bit of a satire. I know Lissy didn't care for that one quite so much, but I thought it had—it was a satire that had some bite to it. I liked Orpheus Engine too, or Engines. That was the one about Jupiter, though I thought it was too condensed. I thought it was very imaginative, and I thought it would have worked better if it had been a little bit longer. But he kind of crushed it together a bit too much. But overall, I thought it was really... Uh, it was the most imaginative story in the bunch from the standpoint of technology. And it was the only story in the whole book, well, except for the upload in that race for Arcadia, where human and were actually different from they are now. And... That's kind of unrealistic when most of these stories play, take place, you know, either later this century or next century or whatever. Um, I did not care for the Ben, uh, the um, the uh, Jack McDevitt story, the, the political one where, you know, it was actually the second story. They find that there's an alien and NASA's covering it up or something. And so, um, but I also liked the one about the the Brazilian, the rescue there. That was kind of good because there was some suspense there because the corporation kept trying to interfere with them rescuing him. And uh, so I enjoyed that one quite a bit. And I'll, I'll have comments about some of the other ones as we go on. But I thought it was pretty good, not great. I thought a lot of the stories seemed kind of archaic or retro or something. Um as I think Marshall was pointing out. But other than that, it was moderately enjoyable overall. Yeah, I also like the editing because I like to know where we're going in anthology. It kind of helps you to keep track of, well, am I going to read this one or shall I just skip it or whatever? And I pretty much read all of them. But at least the book was okay. At least it wasn't awful because having read some comments about short stories from our email list and stuff, you know, um, there's at least one or two people who don't really like short stories that much, and I was afraid this was going to be one of those awful short story collections where it was just boring, but it, I mean, I think there was something for everybody, at least one story or maybe part of one, so, uh, but I did like the editor very much. I, that introduction, just, I loved that introduction because I could sure relate because he grew up around the same time I did with Glenn and all that. So it was it was fun to just read that. And then, of course, that 
kind of leads right into the book itself. I guess another thing I liked about them is the endings seem to be mostly positive. Uh, there was none of this, you know, gloom and doom and such not. And I'm getting really tired of that in the books. By the way, I think I read, and I'm not sure whether it was analog. I have a sneaky feeling it was in Playboy, a story very similar to the one about the woman that got knocked off the space elevator, except this one was from the moon. The guy was getting launched to Earth by a railgun, and one of the magnets failed, so he didn't achieve escape velocity. So he went into orbit about the moon, and you know it was all about him thinking about what was going to happen. And then there was a climax at the end um, where he nearly, you know, he saw this wall or range of mountains getting closer and closer, and he saw he wasn't going to clear it. And just as you thought he was going to hit the mountains, the orbiter that he'd been in crashed into the mountains and opened a gap for him. And I thought that one was pretty good at the time, but it was very similar to the at least the concept was similar to the one about the orbiting lady. What was the name of the one that it, where the Chinese woman was on that ship and she would, you know, she wanted to, she wanted to take control of that asteroid for for the People's Republic of China? And then she found that how would you describe it? this <laughs> swindler or crook or whatever and got there first. I, I thought that was a rather entertaining story and it had a, a, a pretty interesting ending. You know, I can't remember the name of it. I read that thing twice because I kind of didn't really catch it the first time to figure out what was going on. And mine started wandering, so I read it twice, and I can't remember now. What the, but I know what you're talking about. I thought that was an interesting one, too. It's called Rare Off-Earth Elements, a Sam Gunn tale. I'm cheating. I'm looking at the contents here just before I hit the control key on my book sense. So, um yeah, it was all right, but it was so predictable. I mean, I even I even said, um, I've been broke before, just as the guy said it, and when Lissy and I were reading it last yesterday, and I, told, and I told her he was going to go off to the belt and claim asteroids there with his new fusion drive, and that's exactly what he did. And it was, it was kind of a puff, you know, I don't know, kind of a puff piece, I guess. I don't know, not too, you know. Uh, but it was all right, I guess. It wasn't my favorite, but by the way, the positive endings, though, that final story, those two people got stranded on Mars because the rich guy's father didn't want them back, or at least that was the guy's conjecture, um, wanted to make his point about space exploration being a waste, and he wanted uh, people to support his orbital habitats and stuff. And So uh, he kind of did a little bit of a Martian thing with that, the Martian uh, book with the day such and such and the day such and such and their progress and planting things and um, getting the habitat organized, but um, we don't know if they ever got rescued or not. That was a bit disappointing. But I think the interesting thing is that uh, and most of the stories did not have any aliens. How many stories were, were there any type of alien life at all? Maybe two or, or, or were there more than that? I think it depends on what you call aliens, because in some of them there were AI um, entities very highly developed. And then in other ones you do have actual aliens, I guess. Although, I don't know what you would call an AI, because <laughs> you can have alien AIs, I suppose. Have them uh, function differently and, and think differently. This is Carla Hayes. I don't make an appearance very often because I'm on a goofy work schedule. And also because a lot of the science fiction books are really long and I know I'm not going to finish them. I happen to like the short stories because if you don't like one, you know there's a good one coming. You know, I mean, you know there's another one coming and it's really awful. You can skip it. I didn't. But anyhow, that said, my favorites were I like the rabbit hole a whole lot when they were going through the black hole and um, you know that that one just that one just struck me and all the Alice in Wonderland references and things like that it was more fantasy than science fiction I also liked the one where they were trying to go back in time and they kept stepping on the pizza pan and going to the wrong times I thought that was really good and I also liked the one about the Brazilian 
But the one I liked, too, was the one about um, the guy that, um, you know, he was sent into space, and um, they just sent his brain, and that he didn't know it, and, you know, um, so they, they just, um, they just you know, he was leaving his wife and his child, and, and you know, they, they sent his brain and, into space. So that sort of left you hanging. And the one thing I did like about the stories Although a lot of them had positive endings, a lot of them were sort of, some of them were sort of like the Sopranos in that um, you could write your own ending because, you know, nobody knows what happened at the end of the Sopranos. I mean, there's, you know, did he get his brains blown out or is he still living? You know, it was just like, you know, don't stop believing and then all of a sudden the music stops and everything. And I like stories like that because that, then you can sort of fashion the ending the way you want and different people might come up with different scenario for the endings of that but but i really enjoyed i I guess i really did enjoy this book yeah that story was uh, we mentioned it briefly it was about that russian guy who went up and they were all saying oh we're going to be the first the first russians up there and and new planet and all that and it turned out that that you know they took his personality out and packed that into the ship um, it, there seemed to be a little bit of quirkiness kind of throughout the book, which I think, at least for me reading it, kind of made it sparkle because there was some some funny stuff. Like we we briefly mentioned the TV thing, he, you know, all the you know reality type stuff, alternate reality or whatever you call it, and uh, I like that one. You could just imagine this couple sitting around saying, "What's going on? Is it started yet?" You know. <laughs> Of course, I don't have a TV, but, you know, I'd like to read this stuff. Well, sorry, I got a phone call, so if you guys already mentioned this, forgive me for asking, but I like kind of like the story about the Russian, too, but I can't for the life of me remember how it ended. They made a deal. Um, they, um, they told him what was happening, and they explained it to him, and he said he wanted to see his wife and talk to her, and and uh, tell the truth, and they uh, so. But he said he would go through with the job if they agreed, and I think they agreed. Yeah, I think they did. In fact, they said that he gave a couple of conditions, and he wanted his wife to have you know control of you know of, of what was happening. I think the money, whatever funds, and then also that his his personality or whatever it was in closing when he when it came back that he would that is it would be delivered to his wife and she would take charge of it. Because he didn't trust, he didn't trust those, you know, the, the 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 controllers there, which I can't blame him for, you know, how they had deceived him in the beginning. But it was interesting. I liked that accent that the uh, the narrator put to the Russian, you know, the Russians. And, <laughs> you know, I don't how how true they, they, you know, how true the capturing of the Russian psychology might be in that story, but it, it was it was pretty realistic to me. Yeah, I thought it was realistic, too, and actually that makes... I do remember him talking about his wife. What I couldn't remember is if he did make it to to the planet or not. They didn't tell you that. They ended the story after he agreed to do the job, after they agreed to his conditions. That was the end of the story. And the guy who wrote it was from Russia, so Alex Schwartzman, he was an... I don't know, he's lived here for many years, but he was born in Russia, so I thought the story rang very authentic. I do think the narrator did a very good job with the various stories, and it sort of brought a lot of spark to the stories as well. Yeah, and that's a fairly recent recording, too, because it just came out. And so I hope he reads some more stuff like that, or if not like that, at least more science fiction. Because he really really was pretty good. Well, I also like short stories and novellas and science fiction got its start was modern start in the 30s and in you know with Hugo Gernsback and all in the short stories and even a lot of the early novels were compilations of short stories kind of um, stapled together like the Foundation Trilogy and More Than Human and you know good many others uh, were, were collections of short stories that were put together um so I like them because, you know, they show you what an author's like without investing in a whole novel, for one thing. For another thing, not every story needs to be a novel length to give you a good and interesting uh, vision of the future or an interesting idea or interesting characters. It doesn't have to be 
a novel. Um, so I like the short stories, and uh, I, I have a bunch of anthologies here that I want to get to at some point. Um, I, I'm way behind on my best of year anthologies, which I happen to like quite a lot. So anyway, in this new Alistair Reynolds anthology that I just got yesterday, I'm looking at that. That's pretty cool. So uh, no, I'm I'm in the minority perhaps, but I like the short stories a lot. The other thing about short stories is you're not stuck with the same thing for pages and pages and pages. You know, and if you don't like one thing, you can go on to the next one, and maybe you'll like it better. So I won't say I prefer short stories, but I think I like them a whole lot better than these war and peace-like things that a lot of authors, and not just science fiction authors, are writing anymore. Yeah, I like short stories equally well to novels. I can't say I prefer one genre over the other. I still read Asimov and Analog, and like you said, it's nice to... If you don't like it, you can just skip ahead to the next one. I think I, f- I find that I do tend to like the one or two hour in length novellas they have in the magazines. Also, short story collections are nice for fillers, like if you just read a long book and you want a couple of short things to round out your day before you start another book on the next day. They're nice for that, too. Well, and another thing, and it's sort of related to what I said, but it gives you a chance to try out an author without investing a lot of time or having to drop a book in the middle. Uh, the short story collections give you a way of doing that, and I've found some really good authors. You know, I was, you know, I I'll try their short stories first, and if I think those are good, then I'm more likely to try a novel if they have any. Um, I'm less likely to try a novel from an author I don't know. I've done it. You know, if the blurb looks really good, but the short stories are a great way to meet new authors without investing so much time. Has anyone, you know, gone in to find out of all these? Authors, how many were there? Twelve or so. How many of them have other novels on Bard that we might want, that we haven't read or that we might want to read? I haven't looked that up. Um, that's another thing about these the, this anthology and most of the anthologies, like the Gardner Dozois best ofs. They tell you a lot of other things the authors have written that you can look up. I found books that way myself. That's how I found the Golden Age trilogy actually because they had a story by. John C. Wright in one of them, and they mentioned this trilogy, and I had never heard of it. And then Bard comes out with it not too long afterwards, and I just grabbed it immediately. So um, I don't know. That's something we'd have to check at the, uh, you know, on. Um, they certainly didn't have. Uh, I, I did check on one or two, um, but Bard uh, Bard does not have. I mean, when you consider the number of books that Bard has, it's it's a very small number of print books. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure they have some from uh, Ben Voba. I know they have most of the Marjapur stuff from Silverberg. I don't know about the others. Yeah, Ben Bova will have a lot. You're right, and Silverberg will have a lot. Um, most of these other authors are not. You know, I don't know how many other novels. I mean, he tells us at the end of each one, but I didn't, I didn't keep track because a lot of these authors are not uh, classic. You know, most of them are pretty new writers, it seems. I'm curious about something else. Um, for those of you who are have been totally blind since birth and maybe don't have a lot of concept of of colors and, and things like that. Um, do you find it sometimes overwhelming? Um, you you want to know what space is like, but when when they get into these um, long visual descriptions of things, um, do you sometimes find it sort of overwhelming and you sort of get, get lost in those kinds of things and you still don't get a, a clear concept of it? Or is it just me? Because that was one thing I was thinking, oh, I'm going to learn about more what it was like to be in space. And then they got into these, you know, these visual descriptions that I was having a hard time making sense of simply because I haven't been able to see. But I don't know if that was anybody else's experience or if it's just me. Well, I can speak in general terms. I find that books allow me to to uh, visual or how should I put it? Should I say visualize or experience uh, 
visual things that otherwise I wouldn't, you know, not having seen, I wouldn't be able to do, uh, especially books that have to do, that take place in different countries and describe different, you know, natural scenes and even some of the, some of the space things. So, you know, I, I find it to be a, a real asset to read books and be able to uh, learn about things through descriptions, but that otherwise would not, you couldn't see, because to, to find someone to describe in detail things, let's say if you're taking a ride with some friend or with a relative, many times they're not able to do much describing. So I find through books that's a, a way of, 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 you know, learning about you, uh, one's environment that otherwise you might not be aware of. One thing that helped me along the way is to read books by astronauts who actually went into space. Um, they t- actually tell you what it was like. There's a, a new one that came out recently by Buzz Aldrin, which described a bit about his um, experiences on the moon and what it was actually like in zero-G um, in the in the space capsule and there's another book that came out by actually it was written in 1976 or so 77 about Skylab and the astronauts who were there and they talked about all the things you could do with weightlessness you could actually stretch water to make it huge and long and skinny and that's the kind of thing that just captivated me so if you can find some books on Bard by astronauts, um, especially look up the word Skylab, S-K-Y-L-A-B. It's a short book, probably just a few hours long, but it really will help you to kind of get a good idea of what it's like in space. Not so much the visual stuff, but the way that things work. And, yeah, it's 40-year-old technology, but everything was so new then, and everybody was so excited about it. So that might help you sometime when you have time to sit down and look for that. Uh, oh, by the way, Jack McDevitt has books on, uh, some of them are in Braille, some of them are on Bard, I think. Uh, some of his aren't bad. Um, they're pretty good. Better than the story that was in this anthology, anyway. Um, I wasn't totally blind when I was born, so I still have memory of colors and some 2D visual, not 3D. I never had 3D vision, but um, depth perception, I should say. But, um, yeah, I think if you're totally blind and have no visual reference at all, that might um, be more difficult, but I can't relate to that. Well, basically for me, um, I've lost a little bit that I've had, but I've never had color. To me, there's only there are only two colors, light and dark. So when they got into these different hues of, of, of various colors, I didn't know if somebody, and I know it would have been boring, but if somebody could have rephrased it and said it was dark or it was light, um, you know what I mean? I might have been able to get it. But sometimes, um, I even find this with um, audio description. There, there are times that there are just so many details, so many visual details, uh, so much description, and I, I sort of... I get lost in it because it doesn't mean anything to me. And sometimes I think, well, well, could they just shut up and let me hear the movie? Because it's like every minute of your time is is programmed. You don't have time to process the dialogue that you hear. I'm not saying I don't like a description, but um, sometimes um, I like to see it with the description first and then maybe without, and I can enjoy it um, better because... Sometimes when they they just it's just overload. I mean, they're always somebody talking at you, and you don't really have time to to emotionally experience it or process it. Well, I I had sight until about oh twenty or twenty five years ago, so I don't know if I can describe it. But one of the things that strikes me about space was the clarity of the photographs. Um. They had one where the Gemini 6 and 7 had rendezvoused, and they were taking a picture of the other capsule, and you could see the guy sticking his face up close to the window. That's not the kind of thing I would associate um, with normal pictures. Um, 
And contrary to popular belief, I don't ever remember seeing stars in any of the photographs. They obviously were there, but I never noticed them. And that's about the best I can do um, in describing what they looked like. It's really hard because color is a big part of it, and you can't really describe it without knowing what it is. Uh, Carla, just a suggestion about movies. I have some movies that I really liked, and and I first got them described and appreciated them, but then I also got them non-described. I just bought the commercial DVDs and converted them to MP3 so I could keep them and, and listen to them. And it helps to have the regular non-described movies, too, because then you can use your imagination when you're familiar enough with what's going on, and you can actually pick up more sound because the people describing the movie, sometimes they tend to turn down the sound a little bit depending on who the processor is usually it's it's british people who do that unfortunately that the, their processing doesn't allow them to keep the volume of the regular movie up so you can hear the whole thing and yet at the same time hear the person describing and i know exactly what you mean i have movies that i have loved for years and getting a description is fine <clears throat> but once you know what's going on, it's much easier just to listen to it non-described, and that way you get more of the, the tone of, of the sound and the characters, what they're like, and you find out what the description drowned out, so it makes it a little more easy to, to listen to. I think you're totally right about that. I got the described version of um, Polar Express because... When it was non-described, there was a lot of things. There were a lot of things that I missed. But then I listened to the description, and I went back to the non-described one, and it did bring a lot more meaning to it. But one thing about space that, and I know nobody's going to describe it to me the way I need it to be um, described because they would think it's boring. But the details that I'd like to know about is um, things like, um, okay, if you're up in space, um would it be like totally black and then um, the sun would be sort of like a spotlight in a in a dark room that might cast a shadow of light somewhere? I mean, I would understand that because I understand dark and light. And if you're, as you're going up into space, does it get um, gradually darker? Like um, is it dusk when you're right about to go into orbit and then it gets darker? Um, and I mean, when you're standing on the moon, do you look up? and say, oh, the earth is out tonight, and you it's like a big light ball. I mean, nobody's going to tell you light and dark. They're going to tell you all these other things, and I just need some of the basics. Well, I can tell you a little bit. As you get higher and higher, the sky gets darker and darker. It goes bluer and bluer, and eventually when you get high enough, you start seeing black. If you land on the moon... If you're in the daylight side, you have I don't I don't think you have very much gray. I think it's mostly black and white uh, because there's no air at all to dif- to diffuse the light. So it's like being in a big spotlight um, all the time. I don't know. I the only thing I know about the sun is that they burned out the first camera in the moon landing by accidentally pointing it at the sun. So the sun's very bright. I think it's really dangerous. Um, They actually have a gold filter on their helmets to reflect most of the sunlight. So I don't know if that will help. And there is, you know, basically the idea of a big ball floating in space is exactly what you see from the moon of the Earth. Um, it's just a, well, I've only seen it in two dimensions, so I don't know if there's a third dimensional field or not, but it's, it's a sphere or a circle, um, with blues and greens and white, and that doesn't tell you anything, of course, but that's an attempt. 
I honestly, uh, I've made some exceptions. There's been some movies that I've listened to with description, uh, Total Recall and Star Trek One, which I actually thought benefited a lot from description uh, because there was a lot of places where there was no dialogue, and I enjoyed the movie much better with the description. But in general, I don't make a lot of effort to see movies. Uh, we go once in a while and. Our movie theater has described movies now. You just get these little headphones and you put them on. And, but um, it's really a kludge. It's always going to be a kludge. Uh, and there will always be differences about how much description you should put in. Um, and you don't want to step on the dialogue. And Books are different. Books, you get the same description a sighted person gets. And you not only get that, but you get the thoughts of the people as well. Um, you get everything a sighted person gets with a book. Um, you can argue about whether the narration inserts any kind of interpretation, but if you read it in Braille, um, you don't get that, so you get it as close to what a sighted person gets as, as possible, without graphs and charts, of course, but when, in fiction that isn't really a, an issue. So, uh, for me, I mean, I've seen movies, I'll continue to see movies, but it's really kind of not my... I just don't care as much about them because, you know, they're not made for people who can't see, and they, they put these descriptions in, and that's great, and I've enjoyed some of them, but in general, I just, movies are definitely second best to books for me. I even find that with the movies on TV. I'll make special efforts to see ones I've already seen that I saw when I had eyesight um, because I still remember some of the scenes um, there's one, they had it on yesterday on one of the TV channels, Forbidden Planet. And I still remember seeing the monster's footsteps as it walked over to the spaceship, climbed up inside. Um, but the newer ones just don't do it. And I don't know how you describe, describe something like, oh, the space battle series in the Star Wars. You know, things are just happening too fast to um, describe it. I wonder, you know, one of the things that I would really like to be able to experience, and I don't know how much a blind person could experience, but what's coming into vogue now is the virtual reality type things where you could supposedly putting on a pair of glasses could actually be transported into a, in, into different realities or different landscapes. But without sight, I don't know how much the hearing would really help us to completely experience that. But that's something that I really wish I could we'd be able to enjoy. I have an application that I downloaded for, oh, for Windows 10 about the Mars rover, and I assume that when you're when you when you open it up, you supposedly can actually see the rover moving around on Mars. I guess that would be interesting to be able to, to be able to see or have it some way described. I suspect a lot of the vision, the um, virtual reality stuff, is illusion um, because it's visual effects basically, and how they can coordinate themselves or be coordinated to look like this or that or the other. It would be fun if you could actually teleport to some of these places. <laughs> that would be just absolutely superb, but that's long, long in the future, I suspect. Yes, if at all. Now, I just want to thank you, folks, for that did, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, shed some light on things um, for me as far as you know, describing what it would be like to go up and how it gets, you know, black. It's sort of what I s suspected, what I imagined. I am going to read books by astronauts. In fact, I have a few on my list that I want to read, just to find out even what it feels like. Like, um, what does it feel like when you're blasting off, and what weightness, weightlessness feels like, and just, um, you know, just things like that. Um, I, I really would like to. Um, uh, to to try to do that. Now I visited NASA in in, in Houston, um, you know, at the Space Center there, and they did have a simulator where you could um, simulate, you know, get in it and simulate blasting off. But um, 
it was recommended that because I have a, you know, I have a heart problem that I not participate in that. And I was sort of disappointed because they said if you have any in any heart problems that you you couldn't participate in that. And I was sort of thinking, well, what would that feel like? And um, I guess the closest thing I'll ever get to it is a centrifugal force on a Kennywood ride or something. Well, if you get in a a jet or even a car. Um, if you can accelerate fast enough, you'll feel some increase in G's. Um, the best rides would be something like a roller coaster when it gets down at the bottom of the hill, because that's where you'd pick up the most most G. But even those are not more than maybe a G or maybe a G and a half. Weightlessness. I don't know if there's a commercial company that does it or not, but um, the astronauts train in an, an in an airliner, and they make it go up and down like a a roller coaster. Maybe you could feel weightlessness on a roller coaster too, as you went over the top of the hill. But that's what they do in the in the airliner. They put it into a dive, pull up, and then as they go over the top before they start down again, they actually get a maybe 30 seconds of weightlessness. Uh, in fact, they call the plane the Vomit Comet because apparently a lot of people respond that way. Well, the Tilt-A-Whirl will definitely give you a feeling of some centrifugal force. That used to make me really, really sick, but of course it's nothing like what the astronauts experience. I think there is a place... Um, I think it might be in Kansas City, and there might be more than one, where you can pay money and you go to some place and they they somehow make you feel weightless. I, I'm not sure how this could possibly work and how you could possibly keep people from getting sick or hurting themselves, but I know when we were going there for a family reunion, some people were looking into going there, and then we just never got around to doing it. I think that astronauts are also trained quite a bit underwater. They have these big, huge huge tanks of of water that they get into their suits and they go under there and even in the ocean if they can find a place that's calm enough and they can move around as if they were weightless because they you know have that kind of buoyancy um, or lack of and they spend a great deal of time practicing some of the things they need to do in space and doing it underwater here on Earth, and uh, they learn a lot that way, but of course, once they get into space, they learn a lot more because it's, they have the actual weightlessness, but yeah, I think it would be kind of frightening. I tend to be scared of things like that. I'm terrified of being in water above my waist because it's just too it's too unstable for me. I like my feet on the ground, I guess. I wouldn't be too good of an astronaut, although I daydream about it all the time. <laughs> the other way you might be able to experience weightlessness is take a skydive. But uh, I don't know if I'd like that. If anything goes wrong, the consequences of a skydive screw-up are, are not good. Oh, I'd like to get... Uh into one of those planes for 30 seconds. I've never gotten motion sickness in my life. I've been on the demon drop at Cedar Point, and that drops 180 or 200 feet, I forget, um, 150, I forget. But it's it's free fall for a second or so, anyway. Um, maybe a second and a half. But um, I've never gotten motion sickness in my life, and I've been on every ride you know, that I could. So I think I could do it. Um, but I think unless you're a famous celebrity or an astronaut in training, you don't get that. Uh, you're not able to get that. And even if I could, I probably couldn't afford it. But it's ten minutes till the hour. We should probably start thinking about our next book pretty soon, I'm afraid. Yep, I was just going to suggest that. And that book that you mentioned in the, in the recent email, Hot House, sounds very interesting. I downloaded it from Bookshare, and the description sounds very interesting. I don't know how long or big a book it is, but sounds like it might be something to definitely consider. What's the premise of the book? Um, I was going to let Evan describe it since he wrote it, but it takes place in a future time when when the world was, figure out what happened, where was devastated, was very few humans left, 
I forget exactly the, the, the description. I don't know. The, um, I don't know if any of you follow Science Friday, but they had a, a book reading thing, and they had, and, and it was on Bard. I'm trying to think of what it was, but one of the science fiction books that they had for their book discussion, when um, you know it was a utopian society, and and I should have written down the name. I can't really um, remember what it was, but I was thinking at the time, boy, that would be a good book for our group. Funny you would mention that. I love Science Friday, and I remember thinking that, too, and I didn't write the book down either. Do you know who the author was? How far back was it? Do you remember what date the show? I think they had podcasts that you could probably go into um, NPR and, and find it if you want to listen to the whole show to try to find But it, it would be good to know which show it was. Yeah, they do have podcasts, and probably the description of the podcast would say something about book club. Um, I, I think it was at least a month or two ago. Well, this hot house is 355K or so, which is not a really long novel. Um, I'm not sure what that translates to in terms of hours of reading. Besides, that varies from one narrator to another anyway. But it's not a long novel. Um, it's about a far future Earth where the sun is only on one side and... It's heated up dramatically, and there are most humans. There, are, there aren't many humans left, but it's it's a, a, a great deal of uh, new kinds of plants, and mostly plants, but I think animals have. It's a new ecology in the far future, and he imagines it very vividly, apparently. And a group of companions goes to the Terminator, um, and apparently they find something at the Terminator. Um, I wish I could read the synopsis and hold down the control key and listen to my uh, computer at the same time, but I can't do all those things at once. So um, so I'm going to have to leave my vague sort of recollection as it is. Um, I can post about it, but um, it would have to be after the meeting. Unfortunately, um, if somebody wants to get the synopsis and plunk it into the uh, text thing here with the F8 key and people want to read it but that's the basic idea of the book it's a more of a journey of exploration it's not a conflict you know kind of book between good and evil though I think there are carnivorous plants and you know there are perils on the journey but it's more of a kind of a journey and an exploration of the of the earth as it is in the very distant future who is the author of that I couldn't remember. That's Brian W. Aldous. It actually won a Hugo Award in 1962, I think, or 61, 63, something like that. Um, so I'd forgotten that until I just read it again uh, last week. And it was in David Pringle's 100 Best Books. That's where I heard about it the first time. I thought it sounded really interesting then. And I kind of forgot about it. But this book I'm proofreading for Bookshare has a Brian Aldiss story, in it, and it mentions Hothouse, and I thought, I'll look it up and see if it's on Bookshare. NLS actually has a copy on old two-track cassette, one and, eight, one and seven-eighths inch two-track cassettes, but I don't know if that'll ever be uh, converted. I don't know if they're doing those or not. I think they tried to occasionally, but it probably doesn't work too well, because those are so old, but... It sounds like a pretty good book to me. I've I've read a couple of Aldous novels way back in the day, and I, they were in Braille. They were kind of strange, but I think he can he can write some interesting stuff. You just have to stick with it. But yeah, this one sounds pretty good. Do we, <clears throat> excuse me. Do we have any other alternatives? Yeah, we do. Mary, you had one that you mentioned a couple times uh, about the uh, super bomb city that gets blown into a million years into the future and they're trying to figure out how to survive on this different earth you remember the title of that it's on bard the si- title something like the city at the edge of forever or something like that or the end of forever i've got it on my cassette and i've start or on my reader and i've started it but i almost think the hothouse thing may be more interesting because um, frankly, there's you know in the in the city book they're still using dial rotary phones, um, so it goes you know it really is uh, older technology. I think Hothouse may be better. 
I think so too. This it's City at World's End is what it's called, and it's fairly short. I liked it, but um, you know, and I don't really care about technology. I figure you know if it's written 20 years ago, it's still going to have 20-year-old technology. Whether you, you know, it's, it's just inevitable because that's all they knew back then. But Hot House might still have some old technology considering it was written in 1962, but I think that sounds like a good book. Um, even though we we all have books here, and I guess some people think it's rather inconvenient to use it, but why not? They have a lot of choices, and Hot House sounds like a good one. I don't know, have we read any Aldous before? No, we haven't, and I didn't care for his Heliconia Spring very much, or Heliconia Trilogy very much. It was much too preachy. Um, especially at the uh, the final book with the evil technologists in their laboratory, and they were caricatures of, you know, he was making his environmental points. But in his earlier, you know, he wrote some other books too, you know, about generation ships, and you know, he was he was pretty uh, into the far future in his earlier days. And I read his book Trillion Year Spree, and of course, he was a great admirer of Olaf Stapleton, which is always a, a good. Uh, which is always a positive in my book. So, um, yeah, I thought this sounded really interesting. It's one of those Odyssey kind of books with strange plants and life forms and, you know, people trying to survive and get to somewhere and maybe they'll find something there and maybe they won't because I don't know how it ends either. So um, we just have to wait and find out. But apparently the journey is really interesting. Is part of the, you know, is one of the main parts of the book is you know, the, what he describes and what the Earth is like. That's what really sounds interesting to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd vote for it. Why not? Me too. I would say, let's do it. Sounds good. Although, unfortunately, I might not be here next month. As of now, I might be out of town. But this book does sound good. Yeah, and I don't want to, uh, as I mentioned, I don't want to limit us to Bard because Bard has, certainly has a relatively, I mean, well, a, a in absolute terms, they have many science fiction books, but it really does limit you if you only use Bard, you know, in terms of what you can read. Yeah, I found some really great stuff on Bookshare that I looked for for just ages, like Asimov's on an uh, anthology called Tomorrow's Children, which I've mentioned before. It's an anthology of short stories all about different children of different types from different societies and different cultures and different worlds and it was one that I'd looked for it was on Talking Book back in the 1960s and it was well read but that's never going to show up I don't suppose on Bard so Bookshare just has some great stuff and they've got Open Road and Orion publishers and they're bringing back a bunch of old stuff if you like the old stuff and they're just doing some really really cool things now we just got to get tor on board and then you'll really see a flood of really good stuff that i some of which i've done which will probably be replaced if they ever do get tor on board and actually tor has given a few books to bookshare but for some reason they haven't given very many and i don't know why that is because officially they have put up a couple but for some reason, they're not giving most of their stuff away to Bookshare yet. I don't know why. But it's after 10 o'clock here, so I'm going to stop the recording after I say that our next meeting will be on Thursday, February 9th. And we will be reading Hot House by Brian W. Aldous. Take and take care, and we'll see you next month.